back. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. We'll be in Colossians chapter 1 today in verse 19. So you can go with me there. Um, This summer, myself and three or four of our other preachers have been working through uh, this set of texts from about Colossians 1.15 on into chapter 2. And and I just want to say it to be clear. uh, We have at least three things we're trying to accomplish by having me take a turn, somebody else take a turn, me take a turn, somebody else take a turn. Uh, Three things, at least, that we're trying to do with that. One, um, you all have places and people that Jesus has put you that you are uniquely equipped to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they may have life. Now, Jesus doesn't, and I I can say this with confidence, Jesus doesn't want you to do that only the way I do it. In fact, he doesn't want you to do the way I do it. He wants you to do it the way you do it. And what's really helpful is when we get multiple voices in here, you hear different articulations of the scripture, different articulations of the gospel, and it's clear that this isn't the only voice that can preach the gospel, because I see a bunch of voices that are built to do that very thing in this city. And you want to be released to do that thing. One of the ways we do that is by demonstrating, hey, I'm not the only guy that can talk. Um, Secondly, we have a deep abiding hope to plant churches in Seattle and in the Pacific Northwest. It takes teams of people to be able to do that, and on teams you need guys who can preach. So we want to cultivate an environment where we can lift up preachers to do that work. Uh, And third, um, the desire of myself and our elders deep down at our core is that you understand that there's no single indispensable person for this church other than Jesus. Uh, my deepest hope and desire is I get to do this with you for 40 years. That's what I'd like to do. I'd like to live a ripe old age, and then that's that. I heard about a guy in Portland. He preached till he was 92. Amazing. That sounds awesome. I would love to do that. But at the end of the day, if I'm gone, this church keeps going. Right? That's a good, healthy church. You don't need me. You need Jesus. Um, so those are our hopes. And so I'll pray for us, and we will dig in. I am excited. This is like a kid at Christmas kind of verse. Though Eric gets a really good one next week, too. So I'll pray for us, and we'll dig in. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day, and we are your people. I pray that we would have soft hearts. Uh, I pray we would see the truth of your word. I pray you would uh, uh, show us the life we have, that we wouldn't neglect the great gift that is you that we've been given I pray for us that we wouldn't be distracted by accoutrement. We wouldn't be distracted uh, 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 by systems. We would be a people who are after you, Jesus. That we were after having a city see you, Jesus. And that you'd be king here today. Please send us your Holy Spirit that we might know you with all our heart. Give us soft hearts and open eyes to hear what you've got for us today. We love you, Jesus, and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. All right, we'll be in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, There is an old chestnut I like to dust off from time to time from my man Leonard Ravenhill, who was an old-timey British revival preacher. And in his book, Why Revival Tarries, he's an awesome guy who uses the word like tarry, uh, but why revival tarries, he made this observation. A lot of times people will tell us as the church or, 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 or as we're doing our Christian life as disciples, you know what, you need to make sure that you're not so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Have you ever heard that? You need to make sure you're not, of such, you're not so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Here's what I would, I would propose to you. That today as we look at Jesus, who the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, we'll see the one who had the most heavenly minded orientation and was of the most earthly good. We're going to see Jesus who saw God for who he was. And and Leonard Ravenhill will kick it into high gear and he'll say, here's our problem. As he looked looked around at the church in the 1950s in America and England, he looked around and said, here's our problem. 
We're so earthly-minded, we're of no heavenly good. We want to be a people who see Jesus for who he is and live our whole lives in response to him because that's what Seattle needs. Seattle needs indigenous communities who are here to love the city because of an overflow of who Jesus is and the life he's given to us. Okay? So here we are. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. One of the things we're doing is we're just taking these little verses a piece at a time. Um, This is a a meal laid out with pieces for us to savor. Um, And and sometimes what we do is we get to a great chunk like this, Colossians 1, uh, 15 into 2, or 15 into uh, about 21. This is probably an old hymn. We like to read it. We say, that was awesome, and we move on. And something we sometimes neglect to do is savor the little things that we're trying to, the Bible's trying to show us about Jesus. We stop and we don't stop and say, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What the heck does that even mean? What, what does that mean? We just kind of read it like, that's awesome. And that's right. It's right that we would look at that and worship Jesus and, and think it's awesome. But what I want us to do and I want you to do is to be able to read your Bible in such a way that as you're reading something like Colossians 1.15... This has so many cool things, like Eric next week has, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And if you just move on, there's a lot in there that you can really chew on for a while. And so we want to chew on the fullness of, in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And here's the deal. Um, We live in a Christian uh, time, or a time for Christians, where uh, we're sort of uh, just application fiends. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you were to find a Christian bookstore, because we live in Seattle and there isn't a Christian bookstore in Seattle, but if you were to go out into the suburbs and find a Christian bookstore, um, at those bookstores, the theology sections are, are shrinking. They're drying up. Christology, doxology, these big books with big ideas. And I'm not saying you have to read big books. I like big books. I'm not saying you have to read them, but what I'm saying is it's telling that the thing is becoming more and more and more and more and more filled with how you can have a gospel-centered checkbook or how Jesus can be your life coach or how your life can be better, uh, but if it's better without the gospel, it's no life at all. Uh, our problem and our reason why we're so ap- we love application so much is because we love ourselves so much. We want to, I want to know how to be a better wife or a husband. I want to know the 10 steps to dating success. I want, to be, I want the techniques to be a better parent. I want to do better with my checkbook. I want to do better with my money. And I'm not saying those things are wrong, but if that is the thing that this terminates on, is you having a better skill set, that is not worship. That's you and a skill set, and someone else can give that to you. There's plenty of cooler books on Amazon, and you don't even have to get up in the morning to get them. I think there's something bigger and more profound. And this is why we got to be careful that we don't just skim right by this first chapter of Colossians and get into what Paul tells us to do. Because he's not actually telling us what to do. He's telling us to respond to this person. He's telling us to have this life in Jesus, not just do some stuff. Man, the point of your life isn't to do some stuff. It's to worship Jesus. And here's my deep conviction. That if we're done here, and you have a deeper sense in your life, of the reality that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that won't just change how you do your checkbook. That will change you. That will change your heart. That will change who you are. It will help you understand, if you're a Christian, who you already are better. And guess what? That will make you a better dad. 
that will make you do something different with your checkbook. And it won't just be how you invest better and make more prudent decisions. It will be how you worship with every line of your budget. How you understand that every penny you have is for the glory of God, which is a radically different thing than some technique. And I, hey, I want you to have a balanced budget. I want you to pay your bills on time. I, I want you to be a good dad or a mom. I want you to be a good husband. I want that to reflect to the world about Jesus. But what I want, first and foremost, is to have us hearts tuned to the reality of Jesus Christ. In him, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In who? In Jesus. In Jesus, that's who. Something that Paul wants you to know, something the gospel writers want you to know, something the Bible is trying to tell us is the uniqueness of Jesus. Um, If you're someone who reads the first 78% of the Bible called the Old Testament. You're supposed to read that first 78% and then you get to this Jesus guy in Mark or Matthew or Luke or whichever one you want to put who came first or wherever you go there. But you're supposed to get to Jesus in the course of history and have your face melted. You're supposed to get to Jesus and be like, wait a second, what's going on here? Okay, you got Moses. He's doing some stuff. He's got a stick. It turns into a snake. That's cool. Um, Abraham. Cool stuff happened to Abraham. That was neat. Elijah's, uh, you know, healing widows' sons. And, uh, you know, Elisha's sending bears at some teenagers. Like, there's interesting (laughs) stuff happening here. But all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. And he's not just a guy that God is using. He is God himself in human history. He is a unique person in the whole history of the Bible. We're to see that the whole of the Old Testament saying, here's what he's going to look like. Here's what he's going to look like. He's coming. Messiah's coming. God's coming. He's going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be. He's coming, and it's going to be so glorious and wonderful. And from that, you're supposed to get there. And when he gets here, you'd be like, let's party. He's here. He's here. And we're supposed to see how unique and different he is, even against the Bible heroes, right? Which actually, when you read in the fine print, you're like, oh, those guys aren't really heroes at all. Abraham, what are you doing with your wife? Don't tell him he's your sister. What? That's dumb, Abraham. You know that story? He goes and shows up and says, hey, don't kill me, it's my sister. I'm like, oh, cool, great, we won't kill you and we'll take her into our harem. And then he does it again. You're like, why'd you do it again? And then his son does it. You're like, oh, please, stop. (laughs) Not heroes. People who receive grace. People who receive grace. Um, This is the great do-over. I mean, some of the great uniqueness that will be shown, uh, you don't have to go there, but in Matthew chapter 1, uh, there's all this cool infancy material, all this stuff about when he's showing up and how much we should, should celebrate. There's these cool three songs in Luke's gospel. But in, in Matthew, Joseph, the guy who's supposed to marry Jesus' mama, who just figured out that the gal that he hasn't married yet is pregnant and gets pretty bummed out about it, and he's a good dude, so he's going to try and deal with it in a kind and uh, quiet way, but is looking to, to break off what they've got. An angel shows up and says, Joe, it's okay. This is God. God incarnate is coming. And he's going to give him two names. Jesus and Emmanuel. Jesus and Emmanuel. This is one of my favorite parts. It's so telling of his unique role. Because Jesus is the uh, Greek version of the Aramaic version of Joshua from the Old Testament. And what does Joshua mean? What does the name Josh mean? Yahweh saves. The God of the Bible saves. So by the way, next time you're on the bus and you're not quite sure how to get an evangelistic conversation, you ask somebody what their name is, and they say, it's Joshua. You say, what does your name mean? I don't know. Yahweh saves. You want to hear about it? By the way, there's your next evangelistic (laughs) hook on the bus. I thought of that one last night, and I put it in my back pocket, and I gave it to you. 
And so now somebody will be riding the 44 that goes out in front of Anchor Church here, and uh, they'll be riding and be like, and, and the next time someone says, you know what your name means? They're like, oh, please, not this whole Jesus Joshua thing. <laughs> but we get this another name, Emmanuel, right? Joshua is common for us, right? We got at least two or three Joshes, you know, in this church, right? Uh, Manny on the other hand, Emmanuel, you don't hear Jesus called that uh, throughout the Bible, but it means God among us, right? That Yahweh saves, and the way he's going to do the saving is by coming among us. The God of the Bible saves, and God is going to be with us. This is the uniqueness of Jesus and who he is, and it is the great do-over. What do I mean by that? Genesis 1 and 2, how human beings were created. Why did God create them? Well, first of all, it's an outflow of his love. He doesn't need you but he's so gracious and loving that he creates us and he made human beings. You see it there in one and two, to be in a relationship with him, to be God even in the garden who dwells among his people. He's God who's come to bring life, to bring fullness of life and instead of going with God, we went with ourselves. Instead of life, we choose death. Instead of grace, we choose works. Uh, instead of him, we choose all the other things that are so much more appealing in the moment. Instead of infinite joy, we choose finite joy. And Jesus has come to fix that. Jesus has come in the great do-over. That God, is, God has made us to have God to dwell amongst us, and we break all of that. And so what does Jesus do? He comes down to dwell amongst us. And it's the inauguration of the reality of Revelation 20, that when Jesus Christ puts this whole thing back the way it's supposed to be, what do we hear in Revelation 20? The dwelling place of God is with man. Jesus came to die on the cross to redeem a humanity for himself, that he would dwell amongst them forever. Which sounds kind of like Genesis 2. It sounds like there's bookends of what Jesus is doing through his cross to redeem a broken people, to make them right with him, to dwell amongst them. This inaugurated with his dwelling and the in-himness of the dwelling. Uh, Not only that, this reality uh, makes him unique amongst and the backdrop of every other religious system or option. The gospel, you want another thing that you can talk to your barber when you're getting your hair cut? When they say, oh, you go to church? Oh, you're a Christian? Is this very clear thing. And every time I bring this up to someone in Seattle, it blows their mind. They say, well, this is the gospel and this is religion. Religion is a human system to try and be right or to hit the eject button and get out of here or known thingness if you're a Zen Buddhist or to get to paradise or to get to heaven. It's the eject button out of here and it's the things that I do. But the gospel is that Jesus Christ, God himself, has come to dwell among us and to save us from ourselves. Right? Because every other system, you look at it, um, you know, Mormonism, uh, Joseph Smith is an open polytheist. I don't know if you know that, but he taught openly, yeah, I'm a polytheist, no problem. Jesus isn't unique in history. He's just one of many options, many gods, no problem, polytheist. Uh, Buddhism, you have to be very careful. We're in the Pacific Northwest. We have lots of Buddhists here. Um, We have Barnes & Noble Buddhists who get the the rock garden that they kind of rake out. And we get people who are legitimate Zen Buddhists, um, legitimate Tibetan Buddhists, whatever they are. And so I want to be careful here because I don't want to just say, Buddhists believe this. Because Buddhists believe actually a lot of different things. But many Buddhists believe this. They believe that it doesn't matter whether the Buddha, the guy, lived or not. It doesn't matter. It's not the point. The point is getting off this rock and out into nothingness, into nirvana, into nothingness, if you're a Zen Buddhist, right? And so they don't even think he's unique. They don't think there was anything special about him. They don't care if he even existed. It's not the point whether he existed or not. It's the point that they have the method to get out of here. 
That's what counts. It's, it's getting out of here. What does Paul say about that towards Jesus? In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, hey, I'll paraphrase the Andrew Pack remix. Hey, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead and wasn't real, Anchor Church, you guys are all idiots for getting out of bed early. It's true. We should be sleeping in. It's Sunday, right? But he has risen from the dead. We have been given life. He is real. He is unique. He does stand out. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, If you go with me to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Skip with me down to verse 14. And the Word, God, who made everything, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen the glory. The glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You want to know God, you look at Jesus. You want to hear God's voice, you open his book and you listen. God has revealed himself in a person. Fully God, fully human, on planet Earth. If you can leave your finger right in John, we'll go back to, we'll come back right here. So just leave your finger there, or your little silky do. And if you have a telephone, I'm sorry. You can't leave your finger there. Figure it out. So we're back in 19. For in him, everybody laughs because like 90% of everyone's using a telephone. And in 1985, they would have said, you guys are crazy. I don't know what you're talking about, telephone. Anyways, uh, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Um, The magnitude of the reality of infinite God who came to dwell among us. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus. Right? The fullness of God was pleased. Infinite God and finite body to bring us infinite life, to pay the price for our infinite sin, and to make us right with God. Go back to John. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word here, if we can nerd out about a word for a minute, in the Greek New Testament, or Greek Old Testament, part of me, it's called the Septuagint. It's the Bible that Jesus would have used. It's the Bible that uh, the disciples would have had. Uh, it's most of the quotes from the, the New Testament come directly out of that translation from the Hebrew into the Greek. You know what the word they use to talk about the tabernacle? Is this word dwelt. What's the tabernacle? The tabernacle in the Old Testament uh, is uh, this box that held the Ten Commandments. And over that box was this pillar of smoke. It was God's manifest presence with his people. A a pillar of smoke by day, a pillar of fire by night. But it was God's very presence in his people, with his people, among his people. And I always think it's good here because I've heard a lot, a lot, a lot of people say, you know what, if I just seen it, I could have faith and follow. And you read the Old Testament, you're like, they saw it. They had fire. They had manna. They didn't believe. Look out, right? That's an aside. That's another sermon. Um, But there it is. And so what what John is trying to say by using the same word, which is, to be technical, a different dwelt than in our Colossians passage, just to be clear and fair. But here, um, he's saying, listen, that thing that happened at the tabernacle, that thing where he was uh, present in this pillar of smoke and fire, he's done so in a man. God is among his people as a human being. 
poor, destitute, empty as a pocket peasant preacher. Right? And he was pleased to dwell among us. Now, what does this mean? If we're back in Colossians, and you have a paper Bible, I don't know how you're going to do this with the telephone, but if you have a paper Bible, look over at your passages and look down with me to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. And what's cool to see is as the different preachers are getting ready, there's a few verses we keep circling around. I don't know if you've noticed that. We're all kind of hovering around John 1. I've, I've seen people hovering around this uh, Colossians 2 passage. I think it's just cool to see how the Spirit works. We didn't work that out. That's just how the Spirit's worked it because the Bible speaks Right? And it, and it works together. But here we are in Colossians 2 and verse 9. What does it say? And I have to flip my page. There we go. Uh, For in him, the whole fullness of deity, de- deity dwells bodily. What does it say in 10? And you, so I have to pause and say, you, anchor church. This means you. You. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. If you're reading Colossians fast to get to the stuff where Paul tells you how to do stuff or what you should do, you're going to miss how you're even going to do it or why you're going to do any of it. Don't read your Bible too fast. Read it nice and slow. Chew on it. It's a meal. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you anchor church, uh, have been filled in him who is the head of the rule of authority. Okay. Now hopefully you've managed to keep your finger in John. Let's go back there. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, Skip with me down to 16. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus has come to make him known. Because why? Back up in one. Verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus Christ has come to bring us life, and life in abundance. Here's how I define the gospel. Three words. Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. What's the gospel? Jesus saves sinners. Because you can unpack that, you know, all day long. We could camp on Jesus and just unpack, man, what does the gravity of that reality mean? Jesus. Jesus saves. That's the word we're looking for. Jesus saves. Who does he save? Sinners. He saves broken people who are running from God, who are rebelling from God, and who cannot fix their own lives. He did not come uh, for the well, but for the sick, right? But he saves. Now, here's the thing we've got to be careful of. If you stop at Jesus saves you from your sin, which is so, look at me in the face, so unbelievably true, 
saves us so deeply and so desperately from ourselves and from Satan and from sin and from death. Saved, 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 saved. But if you stop there and don't get... And he has saved us to what? Himself. He saved us to life. He saved us to joy. He saved us to knowing him. He saved us to loving him. He saved us to serving him. He saved us to being filled with the Holy Spirit. He saved us that every day should be radically different than the days that came before. Radically different. Verse I love. You should love it too. Sometimes we avoid it because people throw it up in the end zone, but there's a reason they throw it up in the end zone. John 3.16. Right? Any kid who grew up in the Bible Belt, whether they're a Christian or not, can quote it. No problem, right? That's not a bad thing. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Right? There's a verse that's just as important. It's John, or pardon me, Luke 3.16. Luke 3.16. No one's got that one memorized. Maybe you do. When I say it, you'll know it, but you probably don't know what the verse is. Luke 3.16. They go to John the Baptist and they say, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we should be partying about? Are you the one that's going to fix everything? Are you the one that's going to bring all the good stuff? And he says, no. No, I'm not even worthy to tie that guy's shoes. He's got to get somebody else to tie his vans, right? He says, I baptize with water, guys. Again, this is the remix. It doesn't say guys in there. I baptize with water. He's coming to baptize the Holy Spirit in fire. That Jesus has paid the price for our sin so that we can have life in abundance. If you are a Christian, God has taken up and is dwelling within you. The, the person of God in the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you right now. And right now. And when you forget about it. And when you go to sleep tonight, God's still dwelling with you. I mean... The God of the universe came and paid the price for all of our sins so that he'd give us life and take up residence inside of us to empower us to love him, know him, serve him, worship him, and to live. How the heck are we going to live the Christian life? God's grace. If that wasn't the case, if he just said, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to save you from your sin. You've got to take care of everything after that. Uh, this is my part of the rent. This is your part of the rent. I paid for all your sins before, uh, but you know Monday, Monday, uh, Monday the fifth. Okay, you're saved. Uh, Tuesday the sixth is on your books, man. And we're gonna have to settle up, right? If God wasn't empowering us to live, there's only so much He can ask of you. You're a human being. You're finite. But if God, the Holy Spirit's indwelling in you and empowering you to live, how much can God ask of you? Well, whatever God's capable of. So, good news, bad news. He can ask anything of you. He can ask anything of you. Because we're given life. Life in abundance. Joy in abundance. And we can do two things where we disbelieve this. Two big things happen um, where we disbelieve this. One, is that you simply live attached to who you were. Or who you think you're supposed to be. You live stuck in there. You say things like, um, I know God's forgiven me, but I could never forgive myself. You ever felt that way? I did this horrible thing before I got saved, and God's forgiven me, but I could never forgive myself. That's not a call you get to make, family. You don't get to call whether you're forgiven or not. 
You're pronounced clean by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and you don't get to do that. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, chapter 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you feel condemned, it's a lie. It's a lie you shouldn't entertain. It's not a sin to be lied to. It's a sin to go along with the lies. You are forgiven. You are clean. You are new. Don't believe anything else. And that's life. Here's my other concern and fear for us. For those of us who've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb and given life. He's just disregarded. What do I mean by that? Tomorrow morning you wake up. It's late for work. You hop in the shower, or you just like stick your head under and wash your hair and go, and so everyone thinks you took a shower. You didn't take a shower. We all know. It's Monday. <laughs> you wash your hair, you get out the door, you go to work, you do your job, you eat lunch with a coworker, you finish your job, you go home, you watch Seinfeld and go to sleep. You do that for the rest of your life. Now, there's two ways we can approach this. I can say... You may have heard me say this before, but I'll say it again because I think we all need to hear it. So we can either kind of have this mentality that Jesus is standing with his hips on his shoulders saying, I've given you all this life and that's what you want to do with it? It's wasted on Seinfeld? Like is your guilt ridding, guilt, I don't know the verb for that, but the person who puts guilt upon you like your aunt, right? Like, I bought you, uh, I bought you that thing and you don't, even, you don't even ride the bike, I bought you, how could you? Or you could miss that you're being invited into life. Jesus died to give you life. It's not guilt. It's an invitation. It's a celebration. It's joy. You've been given Jesus. You have it all. The greatest gift of the gospel is you get Jesus. He, he saved you uh, to do the very thing, and, and, and he's going to do this in fullness in Revelation 20, but right now, you get to live in the thing that Adam and Eve ditched. You get to live with God. Do you re- I mean, do you realize that? He lives, even if you're homeless, he lives with you. God lives with you in the Holy Spirit because of Jesus and his cross. God lives with you. And that is a gift. That's for joy. And that's for life. Life in abundance. Uh, go with me to Luke 10. This is important. Okay. Luke writes these, this big old book, and there's all these big old chapters in it, but if you go with me to uh, look at 38. I'll set the scene. So Jesus just had an interesting conversation with a lawyer who's tried to catch him in illegalism, and he gets the lawyer to say, what's the point of What's the sum total of the law? What's the sum total of things that people are supposed to do? And he says, to love the Lord, God, all your heart, mind, love your neighbor as yourself. To love God with every piece of your capacity. To love God with everything you've got. To throw everything you've got at the love of God. Because why? Because he's loved us so deeply and so desperately that that seriously we can sit out and nerd out about it all day about how much Jesus has done for his glory and on our behalf even though we don't deserve any of it as a complete act of grace on his part towards us and we would not run out of things to say. Right? We could simply turn the microphone on, and everyone could take a turn saying, and this is what God did in my life this week when we're paying attention. And guess what? We could keep going with that all day. 
right? If you're actually awake to what God's doing in your life, one after the other, we get up here. This is what God did this week. I woke up cranky. The kids are up. It's 5.30. And instead of being cranky at them, the Holy Spirit softened my heart. We made applesauce pancakes. Praise the Lord. That was a gift if that happened to you this week, right? I showed up, showed up to work. My boss was a jerk. God softened my heart. I loved him. I took him out for lunch. Turns out his life is falling apart. I, I wasn't jerk back to him. And that was the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. And I bet we could just do that all day if we're awake, if we're paying attention to what Jesus is doing. We just get up and do that all day. And that's life. That's life. Like, that's life life. Right? That's abundant life. That's the life you were built to live. So here in Luke, uh, he then lays out for us the Good Samaritan, which we don't have time to read, but which is awesome. But in 38, this is what happens. So right on the tail end of what we're supposed to do. Love God, love people. Why? Because God's loved you. 38 says this. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Uh, just for the record, uh, what Luke is trying to tell us is that she is a disciple. What he is trying to tell us is that she is a follower of Jesus. And what he's trying to tell us is in Jesus' kingdom, this thing that was only reserved for dudes, ladies are in on the party too. That's what he's telling us there. That's the asterisk. But this upsets Mary, that, or Martha, that Mary's rejecting the status quo for Jesus. Um, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Don't you care, Jesus? She's doing something other than what she's supposed to be doing or what society's telling her to do or the identity that they've given her. Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. And be careful. Listen to how you read Jesus' voice. When you're reading the Bible, I want you to pay attention to how you read. I'm not a fan of red letters because they're all scripture. But if you've got a red letter Bible and you're reading it, how do you read Jesus' voice? Even in this spot, do you read him sensitive and kind or do you read him angry at Martha? Do you read him inviting her in to sit at the feet and come into the party? Or do you read it like the scolding dude? Pay attention to how you read these things because it counts. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Will not be taken away from her. What's she done? She's chosen life because life's there in Jesus. How distracted are you right now in life? How many bells and whistles and uh, 24-hour fluorescent lights are happening in your life that you can't even stop and be awake to what Jesus is doing? Because he's given you life. He's given you life. Don't let, don't let 2013 drown out life. Now, here's what's amazing. Now, somehow I have to do some finger-in-my-Bible kung fu to make this happen. But we have Colossians 1. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Let's talk about this life we have. Then back in 2 and 9, and I'm sorry for this, I couldn't, I couldn't work it on the slides. And so if you just need to sit and listen, I don't mean to do this to you, but it's, it's, we've got we to gotta thread the needle through these verses, okay? So then we come back to 2 and 9, and it said, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. That's the life you have in him who is the head of all authority. You're connected with Jesus. How connected are you with Jesus in this life? John 1 stuff we're talking about. Light, 
life, light, life. Kind of put your fingers in your brain there. Light, life, fullness, Jesus, me, fullness. Fullness. John 8, 12. Let's see if it comes up. John 8, 12. Should be the next slide. John 8, 12. Jesus says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am, which is the name that God in the Old Testament takes for himself, Yahweh. I am. Tell Moses, I am who I am. I am sent you. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If we follow Jesus, we're not walking in darkness, but this is profound. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. What does Jesus say? You know what Jesus says? You are the light of the world. You're the light of the world. Wait, he said, I'm the light of the world. Does he not know his diction? Does he not know his, his proper tenses? Does he have a problem with English? No, because he's speaking in Aramaic, translated into Greek. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I am the light of the world. You are the light of the world. I am the light. Which is it? Which is it? It's yes. Why? The fullness that he has, he gives to us in part. We don't have the fullness he had because guess what? He's God. But we get to share in that fullness because of what he's done through the cross. Okay. So he is the light of the world. And now that he's our head, Colossians 2 and 9, 2 and 10. He's the head and we're the body. We're so linked with Jesus because of the blood of his cross and the forgiveness of our sins that he can say, I am the light of the world and he can say, you are the light of the world. I am the light of the world and you are the light of the world. So what does this mean? This means as we live this life, when we actually take a hold of the life that he's purchased for you in abundance, that something about that life we live exposes the fullness of the life that he has given us, which exposes the fullness of he who gave the life. Are you tracking with me on that one? The way we live exposes what he's done for us, the life he's given us, and ultimately exposes some things about the life giver. Go with me to 5 and 14 in Matthew You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand that it gives light uh, to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Be careful with this verse. You ever heard this one? St. Francis of Assisi said, Preach everywhere you go, and if necessary, use words. What's the problem with that? First of all, the first problem is St. Francis of Assisi never said that. Ferocious preacher, man of God, who went to the most marginalized people, preached the good news to them, and healed and helped and worked with people, uh, you know, people who were massively sick, massively dejected. And what did he do? Ferocious preacher. He's described as kind of like shuffling his feet in front of a barn and just yelling at people. And he's short. And he's just telling people the good news of Jesus and his dirty, dirty monk gear with his monk head thing. I don't know what that looked like. But I have an image in my head that's awesome. <laughs> don't, don't divorce. Don't wrongly divorce. Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you're going to be my witnesses to the end of the earth. What do they do in Acts? They preach their guts out. They heal people. They take care of people. They love God. They love people. 
Don't divorce helping people's felt needs with sharing the gospel. Or share, I don't know why we do this, right? Some people are like, no, we don't do social justice. We just tell people the gospel. Oh, we don't tell people the gospel. We just show people the gospel. Here's what you need to know. The gospel is a message that gets carried. You're carriers of a message. People need to know the truth that Jesus saved sinners. Even if you're walking with them, helping them, and it's years and years and years, at some point in time, you've got to deliver the mail if they're going to get in the kingdom. Jesus saves sinners. And by the way, you're giving them life. Right? Life. You know the truth. Okay, but Matthew 5, uh, we have this, this deep abiding reality. Uh, uh, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Why? Because you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. If you are living in the fullness of Christ, you can't hide what's happening. Now, there's another adage that I'm not a fan of, and I'll say it. Uh, I, I, can, I, I find its origin somewhere in the 50s and can't quite pin it beyond that. Just be a good person, and people ask why you're such a good person. And you can tell them it's Jesus, and they'll become a Christian. What happens in Seattle when people see how good of a person you are? They say, oh, what yoga studio do you go to? And you say, oh, I don't actually go to a yoga studio, but I do love Jesus with all my heart. And they're like, oh, never mind. <laughs> and they quietly and politely walk away and change the subject. Right? We're carriers of a message. But we're also carriers of a life, of his life, and that we get to live in abundance. Right? This exposes the fullness, and our actual life becomes the texture and the context of the apologetic for the truth that we believe. He says that it's silly that we put a basket on that light, right? Nobody does that. He's saying nobody does that. You don't turn on a nightlight under your bed. Don't do that. Don't let the, the first century metaphor get too removed. You don't light a nightlight under your bed. I don't know. You know what I mean? It's, you just don't do that. Two big ways we can do that. We can do um, sort of Phariseeism where we're so removed um, from from culture and from non-Christians, specifically from Christians. Here's my big concern. I have lots of big concerns today, but here's one. Um, as urbanites, we can be uh, in culture a lot because we have the internet, and you can know about the coolest bands, and you can listen to KXP, and you can know what's going on, and you can know about shows, and you can know absolutely no non-Christian people whatsoever. But because you live in the city, and you have a Cigarro CD, and you listen to KXP, you feel like you're on mission, and you're not, you're not, even, you're not only you're not telling people the gospel, you don't actually even know anybody who doesn't know Jesus. That takes work, by the way. Because I don't know if you notice this, but we have a beautiful community here. I don't know if you know this about our church. If you're new, here's what you need to know about Anchor Church. This is a beautiful group of people that I love with all my heart, who I love spending time with. And so it can even become easy for us to just spend time with each other because it's a bunch of neat people. We can also go together and spend time with people who don't know Jesus. We've got neighbors and coworkers and all this kind of stuff, right? So don't forget about it, right? Don't do that. That's basket over the light. Not actually having non-Christian friends is a basket over the light because they're not actually being exposed to the light and the truth. Um, the other side of that is that we can be so in culture. We can be out there and we can be at the shows and we can have all these friends and all this stuff. Uh, but we also know that, that people don't necessarily think it's awesome if you're a Bible-believing Christian in Seattle. And they say, oh, what are you doing on Sunday? You're like, I don't know. I got this thing in the morning and then I'm going to go eat some burgers with some people afterwards. It'll be a good time. Oh, what's the thing you're doing in the morning? Oh, it's this thing. We get together in a boys and girls club. There's a band. Is it a show? What's, what is this thing? There's some spoken word, and um, there's lots of nice people there. But what is it? Just tell me what it is. It's church. Oh, it's church. Like a church church? 
Well, it isn't a boys and girls club, but yeah, a church church. They sing hymns there. Um, Got to be careful. It's really, this weird thing happens when you get to know people. Maybe you've experienced this. This was an observation of one of my teachers that was just astute. We get in a rut. You get in a conversation rut. What do I mean by that? So you've got your neighbor. You just move in. You've got this cool new house. You move out. Uh, you see that he's got some fishing stuff on his truck that you don't care anything about. Uh, but as you're checking your mail together, you say, hey, are you a fisherman? Yeah, I'm a fisherman. And then you talk about fly, fly fishing with a guy for 20 years. And you cannot get out of the conversation. It's the thing you're always going to come back to, right? Uh, we had a piano tuner come to our house. We had this cool piano that was in a fire uh, that my wife's great-grandpa and, her, and his brother pushed out of a house that was burning down. Cool family story. Over 100 years old, grandma said, hey, do you want this piano? I'll pay to move it down. I'll pay to fix it up. It's a family heirloom. It'd be cool if you had it. Sure, we'll take it. Great. So a guy has to come to our house to bring the piano and then hang out and fix it. And so he's in the pastor's house, and so what are we trying to do? We're trying to invite him over for dinner, get start a conversation about Jesus. We're trying to do whatever we're trying to do. And so my wife says, hey, would you like to stay for dinner? It's going to be a long job. And he says, you know, I actually have a Bible study to go to, and they feed me really well there. Oh, the dance. I see. I see what we're doing here, the dance. But he knew. So it turns out the guy doesn't even play piano. He just works as a piano tuner. That's just the job he found. And I would imagine if you're not careful and you're a piano tuner that doesn't even play piano and you show up in people's houses, you're in people's houses all the time, you would waste a lot of opportunities if you just got stuck talking about piano all the time. It doesn't even play, right? It doesn't care. It's his job. It's how he takes care of his family. He likes pianos and he's a very nice man about the piano. But what he was after was our soul. So he got the conversation right going. Oh, tell me, you know, I can't remember the next thing happened. He's like, oh, yeah, and, you know, my wife, we have this great life, but it's really all because of Jesus. He's this guy, and he lives in Mount Vernon. He's awesome. And he's got us in the conversation, right? And all we talked about with Jesus, because I was excited to talk to him about Jesus, too. But at the end of the day, he knew how to get in the rut. He knew how to not be stuck there tuning pianos and not talking to us about Jesus. He's in people's homes all the time. He knew how to keep that basket off the light, Right? Find out whatever that thing is, the thing that you do when you're talking to people that helps that rut happen. Pastor, seminary, those have been big ruts for me. If you want to talk about Hebrew all day long, you're like, really? Okay. If that's how we get to Jesus, I'll do it. I'll roll with you. You should be bored. Um, but figure out whatever that is, right? Because here's the deal. We want to be people who have this light exposed because it exposes the fullness of who he is. And this is the apologetic, Right? So the way that you take in this life that you've been given, the way that you read your Bible and respond to it, that you listen to the Word of God and you do what He says, um, uh, uh, the way you walk in a, in a life and a humility. Uh, we live in a world that doesn't want humble people. We live in a world that wants you to come into a business, uh, a business opportunity or a, an interview and tell them why you're awesome and why you're going to make their company a lot of money because you're awesome. Rarely do you come in and say, you know what, I'm kind of subpar I don't really know what happened at that last company. It blew up and was awesome, and there was lots of money, but really, that was, that was really just a couple lucky breaks. And, um, you know, I, I do work hard. I show up, I work hard, but there were a lot smarter people at my last place of employment, and, you know, I think I'm okay what I do. Did I get called back for a job? Never. Right? Never. 
who walks, I'm not saying go into an, a job interview by, that way, by the way. I'm just saying that's not our society, right? That's not our society. Let's go ahead and stop and pray for just a minute. Jesus, we just pray for that ambulance wherever it's going. We pray for the men who are driving it, for the people who will be helped by it. We pray for the salvation of all and that you would work in that whatever circumstance is happening there um, to save people and call them unto yourself. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Let's keep going. Um, right? The way you eat, the way you do life, right? There is a Dick's Cheeseburgers walking and or driving distance yonder. The dyslexic guy tries to remember which way that is. It's left. It's that way. What does it look like to eat burgers to the glory of God? Well, first of all, you invite some people to go do that with you. You have an opportunity. There's a bunch of people, maybe even people you don't know, who you can go enjoy cheeseburgers with. And they're only like less than two bucks a burger. And when you eat it and you're just thankful for what he's done, and and you realize every gift God has given you, and you take every opportunity to celebrate and to celebrate life, it weirds people out. When you're a celebratory people and it doesn't terminate on self. I know lots of people who like to celebrate a lot, but it's not about Jesus. They will party with you on Wednesday in the afternoon, but it ain't a Jesus party, right? Old buddies, Heshers, you can always count on them Wednesday at noon. Um, and, and ultimately in this, when we live in the freedom that we've been purchased, has been purchased for us by Jesus, and we enjoy him with everything we've got, we get to be light. Get to be light. Right? We're always trying to just get the most out of life by letting everything terminate on our comfort, what we want out of it, and it turns out that that never works. Finding life somewhere other than Jesus never works. You can find an article on somewhere, because we live in the internet age. I forgot where it was at, but Michael Jordan recently did an interview. It was basically about how he had everything, and he's the most miserable human being on planet Earth. And if you're old like me, you know who Michael Jordan is. He's like, that guy is miserable? Miserable. Michael Jordan hates his life, and he's not even shy to talk about it. Why? Can't beat the American dream, that's why. You can't make things that are finite give you infinite joy. Infinite joy is only found in Jesus. And it's a gift. You don't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to earn it. In fact, the more you try and earn it, the more you miss what you've actually been given. savor the truth. This should affect who we are, right? All of a sudden, you're like, oh, yeah, you don't have to give me any application on that thing. This is how to live. Yeah, I'll do my checkbook differently if I actually breathe in that truth. I'll live differently. I'll celebrate differently. I'll do life differently. I'll do friends differently. I'll do food differently. I'll do sleeping differently because Jesus is the king and all I want to do is know him. So as a church, we're trying to be a simple people. The vision for this church is to be a people who live with a white-hot passion for Jesus, who live with a white-hot passion for life, who live with everything we've got knowing him, which means we're repentant people who get all the crud out of our life because I don't want the crud in my life. I don't want sin in my life. I want Jesus. I want to love him, and I want to love others. And I want to make disciples. I want to help other people see Jesus. I want to walk with other people and point them to the truth of who he is. Because, friends, there's very few things in life that are more rewarding than when you're sitting with someone, drinking a cup of coffee, the Bible is open, and they have that aha moment where it's clear to you in that moment that they see Jesus clearer than they did a minute ago. 
man, that is a good, you know what I mean? And if you don't know what I mean, we'd love to help you learn how to do that because you have the word and the spirit. It's not a, you don't need a seminary degree to help people see Jesus. And we want to live in authentic community. We want to be a people who really celebrate and party because the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and is dwelling among us in the Holy Spirit now because of the cross. Beauty. We want to live on mission. Not on this mission, not on Anchor Church's mission. Right? I want to be really clear on that. We want to live on Jesus' mission to Seattle. We want to wade out into what God's already doing. We want to love people, tell them the truth. We want to carry the message. We want to serve the city. Why? Hopefully because we've chewed on a little bit that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and he's our savior and he's our Lord and he's our God and he's the one who's come to forgive us for our sins and give us life. Let's pray. King Jesus, this is your day. This is your life. Everything I have, everything we have, we have because of you and you've been so gracious to us. You've been so generous to us. I pray for us, God. I pray that when we get together as a church, we would celebrate because we have so much to celebrate. That when we leave here, uh, we eat sushi, we go to Dick's, we do whatever, we do it in such a way that is abnormally joyful. Because we know that cheeseburger is not our end glory, that's not our end good, but we're riding the goodness of a $2 cheeseburger on up to your glory. Help us to make things like that not feel absurd, but mundane. That we taste and see that you are good every step of every day, of everything that we have, because we have everything because of you. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit. Please help us to see you for who you are. Help us to live for your glory and give us joy in you. Because you have given us life. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ.